This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here with part six in our special 10-year anniversary programa especial covering the visit to China in 1972 of Richard M. Nixon and the historic meetings he had with Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai. We left off last time with Joe and Kissinger putting on their miner's hat and digging deep into the minutiae of the wording of the final communique that would be signed in February 1972 at the conclusion of the U.S. presidential visit. On the final day of Kissinger's October trip, the two sides were still performing microsurgery on the matter of the joint communique. During the past several days since Kissinger had arrived, the U.S. and Chinese side had enjoyed little in the way of sleep. Both Kissinger, Joe, and their respective aides had pulled one all-nighter after another. Still at an impasse, Kissinger again tried to explain the U.S. position. Quote, We have attempted, Mr. Prime Minister, to draft a communique that takes into account the necessities of both sides. I believe that it would be a very unusual communique if we could agree to it. It would be more honest and more honorable than any other communique that I have seen in the relations between two countries. It states our differences without being offensive, and it tries to state a positive direction without raising false hopes. And, therefore, it could begin a new historical period, not only in the relations of our peoples, but the peoples of the world." On this final day of negotiations, both sides retired to their corners to hash out what had been agreed to so far in the morning session. Time was running out, and this joint communique needed to be finalized. It contained the essence of the new relationship, and both sides had an obvious vested interest in having it worked out to the satisfaction of their respective peoples. The face, the mianzi, of China and the U.S. was also at stake, you know, In the context of all this past history and bad memories that existed between the U.S. and the PRC, and all that bad blood from two wars, that it was all coming down to the wire, I guess it was only natural that it was taking longer than expected to finalize. That evening, for almost two hours, starting at 10 minutes to 10, Joe Enlai and his team assembled. These were the same ones Joe had relied on throughout the talks with Kissinger going back to the July secret trip. Acting Foreign Minister Ji Pangfei, Director of the Western European and American Department Zhang Wenjin, Zhou Enlai's Secretary Xiong Xianghui, as well as the trusted assistants and interpreters Wang Hai Rong and Nancy Tang Wensheng. And sitting next to Kissinger throughout the entirety of his talks was one of the unsung heroes of this chapter in U.S. China history, Winston Lord. Winston Lord, one of America's Diplomatic greats had played a massive role in this whole drama since first secret trip in July. Now they all came together for what was hoped would be the last time with respect to agreeing on the final wording of this joint communique that next year, when Nixon came, would be signed by the leaders of the U.S. and China and serve as the cornerstone for the future relationship. 
Even this late in the game, Kissinger was still being stymied by the wording of the communique that Joe and his side were trying to push through. He did his best to try and reason with Joe about the language being inserted. Let me quote from the transcripts after reading through the version handed to him that evening. Kissinger told Joe straight out, quote, Let me make a philosophical comment before I make specific comments. Ever since this administration has come into office, the president and I have attempted to start a new direction towards the People's Republic. And this is why, for us, the visit in China marks, in many respects, the high point of what we have attempted to do in our foreign policy. We started this when improving relations with the People's Republic of China was not at all a popular course. Now, what fills me with some melancholy is the impression I have that for your own reasons, you are under necessity to state our disagreements in the sharpest and most provocative way possible. All the drafts we have submitted have attempted to emphasize areas of agreement. Now, I understand the pressures and the convictions that push you into an opposite direction. You did not go through what you have done for 50 years in order to alter your beliefs in anticipation of a president's visit. But we have an important decision to make, and the decision is whether we are starting a new period or engaging in a tactic in a struggle. I'm speaking with great frankness. We are trying to begin a new era. Now, for example, to ask the President of the United States to sign a document with the first sentence of the first substantive paragraph saying people of the world want to make revolution is rather strong medicine. Similarly, I have explained to the Prime Minister previously that we did not start the war in Vietnam. That is, this administration did not start it, and we are trying to end it. Indeed, we are hoping it will perhaps be ended by the time the president comes here. But for him to be asked to sign, if the war should go on, the Chinese determination to help to the end the struggle of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, where American soldiers are being killed, is rather painful. We are not asking you not to support them. And the prime minister knows that we have asked nothing with respect to Vietnam, and will take no advantage in any respect in our negotiations towards Vietnam. But the president will have to answer to the American people. So we are not trying to affect your actions. I'm speaking now of your words. I could give other examples. We are not challenging your views. We are just challenging your expression. End quote. Well, Henry Kissinger and the American side had to leave. It was time for some soul-searching on both sides. They retired on the evening of the 25th, and with the ball on the five-yard line, they had to parse the language down to the diplomatic bare minimum that not only satisfied the two leaders, but the people of both countries and the eyes of the world, who were all going to take out their magnifying glasses and analyze everything of what had actually been agreed on. Kissinger and Joe agreed. This communique, when it was announced had to have some meat in there. Otherwise, what was the point to get Chairman Mao and President Nixon involved? Let me quote a short passage from Dr. Kissinger as he tries to explain to his Chinese counterparts about the wording of the part of the communique concerning Taiwan. You'll get the main idea of how excruciating this was. Quote, I want to explain to you what we attempted to do to meet your full suggestions, but we wanted to do what we could in the light of your discussion yesterday. We have taken the version that General Haig brought to you and changed the word abiding interest to position. Where it says it reaffirms its abiding interest, we have said it reaffirms its position. And it added the phrase 
through peaceful negotiations between the parties directly concerned, to make it clear that we don't consider ourselves a party to that negotiation. And we have substituted the word removal for reduction, the progressive removal rather than the progressive reduction. And we have modified this phrase as tensions decrease. End quote. It was a lot of this. On October 26th, the day he was scheduled to depart, Kissinger delayed his flight for another hour to try and take this to the goal line. As Kissinger's jet was getting gassed up, everyone poured over what both sides really hoped would be the final revisions. The last-minute haggling, though much in agreement on substance, was not in lockstep with the final wording. Finally, they just ran out of time. They managed to move the ball a couple yards closer to the goal line, but in the end, Kissinger had to tell Joe that the final communique would have to wait and that he would be sending the very capable Alexander Haig back in January as his special envoy back to China and hopefully finish this off. Then their plane took off. Kissinger and his team had a lot of work to do before reporting the results of the five days of discussions to the president. A lot was riding on this second trip by Kissinger. In July, he had gotten everything sliced and diced for more detailed, concluded discussions at a later time. And this later time was supposed to be this October visit of Kissinger. Despite what we know now, that neither side would ever learn to fully like or trust the other, they still had to find a way to make this work. They had come this far. And for the U.S. and China to make friends, despite the most pessimistic of potential outcomes or consequences, was certainly worth the risk. That's why Nixon wanted to do it. On the evening of October 20th, 1971, at the welcome banquet that Zhou Enlai had put together to welcome Dr. Kissinger and his team, their first evening after arriving, he stood up to give a toast. It was extemporaneous, no notes just an old veteran of half a century of diplomacy going through a routine he had done a thousand times before. In this current dark hour and the relations between the U.S. and China, let's take a moment to remember Zhou Enlai's words. They went like this, quote, Dr. Kissinger and friends, I would like to take this opportunity to welcome President Nixon's special envoy, Dr. Kissinger, and the other American friends who have come to China for this interim visit. The purpose of Dr. Kissinger's present visit is to make preparations related to the political discussions and technical arrangements of President Nixon's visit. A new chapter will now be opened in the history of the relations between China and the United States after they have been cut for 22 years. And we should say that the credit for this should go to Chairman Mao Zedong and President Nixon. Of course, there must be someone serving as a guide. And it was Dr. Kissinger who courageously made a secret visit to China, the so-called land of mystery. That was quite a remarkable thing. This is now Dr. Kissinger's second visit to a land that should no longer be considered a mystery. He has come as a friend and has also brought with him some new friends. As for me, although I have never been to the United States, I know quite a few American friends and the United States is not unfamiliar to me. It is evident that the social systems of our two countries are different in our respective world outlooks. Well, Dr. Kissinger likes to use the word philosophy, are totally different. Yet this should not prevent us from finding common ground. 
The Sino-American talks have gone on for 16 years now, but no common ground has yet been found. Now President Nixon will personally come to Beijing for discussions, and Dr. Kissinger is his advance man, and we hope these discussions will achieve positive results. Our two peoples are great peoples. Although our two countries are separated by the vast Pacific Ocean, friendship links our two peoples together. After receiving the U.S. table tennis team this year, we received a number of other American friends, and we hope that this new era will be approached in a new spirit. I propose a toast to the friendship between the great American people and the great Chinese people, and to the health of Dr. Kissinger and to all other friends. End quote. Just before Dr. Kissinger's plane took off, he said some final words to Zhou Enlai. He took out a small gift that New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller had given him, and he handed it to Zhou Enlai and said, quote, Now I have only one other personal thing to say to you, Mr. Prime Minister. A friend of mine, who was a collector of Chinese art, before I left, sent me something which he wanted me, as a token of the pleasure Chinese art has given him, to bring back something from America to China. It is something in the form of a lotus flower, which he tells me means peace and serenity in traditional China. And so I have taken the liberty of bringing this with me. It is a totally unofficial gift, which indicates the feeling of the American people for what China has meant to so many of them. It is not worth a great deal, but it is a symbol of the attitude with which all of us will come on our journeys next year to improve relations between our peoples and to move from hostility to friendship. End quote. And with a tentative, though not finalized, draft of the communique in hand, both sides parted and Kissinger's plane took off late in the evening back to the U.S. They would meet again the following February. Kissinger flew back to the States, and Joe went back to mopping up the aftermath of the Lin Biao incident. The evening before, the U.N. General Assembly had voted 76 to 33 with 17 abstentions to seat the People's Republic of China as the legitimate government of China. Taiwan was out, and believe me when I say that that was a black day on the island of Formosa. The U.N. ambassador at the time was George Bush 41. He had given his private assurances to the Taiwanese that what happened would not happen. But there's no change in the tide of history. To say there was a conservative backlash is another huge understatement. It was led by none other than Ronald Reagan and other conservative luminaries, such as William F. Buckley Jr., Barry Goldwater, and New York Senator James Buckley. Amidst all this, as if there weren't enough setbacks and tensions and national melodrama going on, November 1971, Pakistan and India got into a war, with Russia backing India and China, of course, backing Pakistan. There was still plenty of time left on the clock for some international crisis or crises to scuttle this whole initiative. The early 1970s, it wasn't such a peaceful time on Earth. Besides the Vietnam War, India-Pakistani wars, there was also the, the first Eritrean civil war, the Bangladesh insurgency, the Yom Kippur War 1973, and the Dirty War going on down in Mexico. Not much peace in the world, nor goodwill towards men and women. It's not like there was 
nothing else going on besides U.S.-China normalization of relations. As the days and weeks ticked by, all that remained was for Nixon to actually carry out the presidential visit. But before that could happen, what Kissinger and Joe could not finalize back in October still had to be finalized. As he said he would, Kissinger sent General Alexander Haig to China. Al Haig was the presidential assistant for national security affairs, which made him one of Kissinger's gang. He went over to China on January 3rd, 1972, and stayed till the 10th, basically working with Joe's people to lay the groundwork for the presidential visit and handle all those tasks that diplomats do to make sure that when the actual important moment arrived, i.e. when Nixon was sitting with Mao or with Joe, that there were no surprises and or possibility of any potential embarrassment. So General Haig went there and he met with Zhou Enlai, Ji Peng Fei, and others. And they discussed, of course, the major topics of the Vietnam War, the India-Pakistani conflict that was still raging, and of course the big one, Taiwan. Mind you, Chairman Mao might not have been involved with any of these foreign diplomats coming and going, but he was briefed constantly by Zhou or by others and knew every single detail of every single discussion. These discussions between General Haig and Zhou, Chiao Guanhua, Chi Peng Fei were very frank, to say the least. On the subject of Vietnam, Zhou pulled no punches and downright called America's involvement in Vietnam a mistake. And he further said the whole world knew it. Therefore, there was no honorable, face-saving way for America to extricate itself. And they went back and forth on all the issues until both sides had said all they wanted to say. And although there was still plenty they disagreed on, they managed to come together on some things, or at worst were clearly aware of each other's stand on all the major issues. It was tedious and very high pressure. And all this time, the Cultural Revolution was still going on. And even after Lin Biao was gone, these radicals down in Shanghai hadn't given up trying to scuttle the whole process. And one other thing about this visit of Al Haig in January 1972... He had to put up with a lot of leftist, anti-American BS from these elites who surrounded Jiang Qing. Sparks were flying in Shanghai between Haig and his anti-American tormentors, constantly trying to bait him and make his stay uncomfortable. Zhou even had to get Mao involved to talk to his wife and to put a lid on these anti-American imperialist hotheads who were giving General Haig a lot of heat at every turn. After almost three years of painstaking back-and-forth negotiation, with setback after breakthrough, now it was finally about to happen. General Haig and his team got the job done, and everything was ready to go. Then, on February 17, 1972, Nixon and the First Lady, Pat Nixon, his wife for 32 years at the time, they took a helicopter to Andrews, where they boarded Air Force One for the flight to Hawaii, where they would spend the first couple days. On the 20th, they flew to Guam, staying overnight. And then the great moment happened. 11.30 a.m. in Beijing, 10.30 at night on the U.S. East Coast, 7.30 in Los Angeles, the perfect time. And believe me, they planned it that way. February 21st, 1972, Air Force One landed at Beijing Capital Airport. There had been no official relations between China and the U.S. for 23 years. 
and that was about to end in a moment. Zhou Enlai, the premier of China, was there to personally greet the president. He waited at the bottom of the stairs of Air Force One. Nixon famously had the Secret Service block the exit so that he alone, with wife Pat, of course, could walk down the steps to the assembled International TV Press Corps and make this historic handshake with Premier Zhou Enlai. The photo with Mao, of course, of Nixon on the Great Wall. There were many great shots that some of us will always remember. But the money shot, the one that, more than any other, defined this moment in history. Well, when you go to the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California, not far from where I live, that moment was immortalized in a statue of the two men, the President of the United States and the Premier of China, both hands extended in friendship. They had a long handshake, with Nixon extending his hand first as he walked the final steps towards Joe and Lai. In this brief moment, Shirley put the ghost to rest of Dulles' snub to Joe 18 years before at the Geneva Conference. Only after the presidential handshake could Kissinger and everyone else on Air Force One make their way out of the plane and bask in whatever glory Nixon had afforded them. And let me just also mention, in that famous photo with the president and the premier, you'll see standing next to Joe to his right was a man named Ji Chao Zhu, who just recently passed away end April this year, age 90. He had quite an extraordinary life and served as the interpreter to both Mao and Joe. So he shows up in a lot of photos. So President Richard Milhouse Nixon enjoyed this moment of political ecstasy that was covered by the entire international press. The U.S. journalists alone numbered around 85, and most of these were TV reporters and crew altogether. Joe's welcoming committee consisted of about 25 officials of various high rank. There were no crowds to meet Nixon and lend an air of mass popular support and enthusiasm. It was a controlled moment, but Nixon indeed at that moment, was being watched around the world, and he had to have thought at that moment that his re-election in November 1972 was assured. After 15 minutes of that stuff, they all got into their cars and headed into the city to start the trip. Joe had said to Nixon in the limo ride, quote, your handshake came over the vastest ocean in the world, 25 years of no communication, end quote. And let's just abruptly end things right here. I'll leave you hanging in suspense for just a little while longer, but rest assured, the electrifying conclusion of this series will be coming sooner than you think. Thanks to everyone who's made it this far. This is a special 10-year anniversary program of the China History Podcast, brought to you by our sponsor, who for now is basically yours truly, Laszlo Montgomery. I'll be waiting for you next time, rest assured. Same bat time, same bat channel for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.